welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living in today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording that you heard is of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement, and it's of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. I'm Jean Jeffress. I'm back with you for the second time. I'm still thankful for the invitation to contribute to the body of this work. I am a member and lay leader at First Congregational Church of Oakland, United Church of Christ, and I'm also a candidate for ordination in the United Church of Christ. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I currently live in the city of Oakland, which exists on the unceded land of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a, pro- a product uh, a a project, rather, of surge faith, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race, white supremacy. We believe white people like us, and like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. We are officially in the season of Lent. This is week one. This is our 40-day journey to the cross. Lent is a time when some people fast and pray and give things up like TV and social media and coffee and chocolate. It's a time to repent, which just means to turn back toward God. It's a time to release all those things that no longer serve us or serve God. It's a time to resist the temptations of this bad old world and forge a new, closer relationship to God. My track record with all this Lenten stuff varies widely. One year I gave up complaining and it actually changed my life with a long lasting positive effect. Though I notice I've been complaining a little lately and it doesn't help. I just end up feeling irritable. This year, I've given up TV and social media. Reruns of Star Trek and Deep Space Nine, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, rather, and the Golden Girls will have to wait. I'm on a Lenten journey, and they can't come. Lent is also about confession, and in that spirit, I will confess that I accidentally opened up Facebook on Ash Wednesday. I only caught a glimpse but I did purposely read a tweet, but it was just one. Anyway, on this first week of Lent, our gospel lectionary puts us in the desert with Jesus and the tempter, the devil themselves. I don't know the devil's gender, so I'm gonna use them. One of my core Christological tenets is that the life and witness of Jesus Christ is about the use of power. Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, had incredible powers 
maybe even the same powers that God has. But he didn't use those powers to advocate for himself or advance himself or to, or to have power over others. He taught and healed and fed and organized and he blessed and he raised folks from the dead. And I guess one could argue that's power over others, but we're not going to do that here. Matthew's temptation story actually disturbs me a little. Jesus has all the right answers. He never wavers. Even after having fasted for 40 days, his answers are perfect. Where's the humanity, I ask? I bring with me to this text a hermeneutic of suspicion. passage from Matthew 4, 11, 1 through 11, rather. Then Jesus was led up was by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. There is a show called House of Cards with Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. Of course, Kevin Spacey abruptly left the show after his unfortunate run-in with the Me Too movement. Nonetheless, maybe you've seen the show. It's about a corrupt congressman from South Carolina and his power-hungry wife. They use people and do terrible things. I watched a couple of seasons of the American version on Netflix. Then I watched the entire British series, of course, the American version is a remake. And after watching the British series, I pretty much could see how it was going to end, so I stopped watching the American version. Plus, shows of political corruption these days cause me more stress than entertainment. The reason why I even mention this show is because in one episode, the Kevin Spacey character, Congressman Francis Underwood, F.U., tells a lobbyist something like this. You should never exchange money for power. And this has stuck with me. Money is an obvious, tangible temptation. It can get us things. With money, we can even buy power. But if you never give up your power in the first place, you don't need to buy it back. The tempter in the story from today's passage 
is essentially offering Jesus various tangible temptations in exchange for and ultimately for surrender of Jesus' own power. First, the tempter says to a very hungry Jesus, Use your power to turn these stones into bread. Then the tempter says, Throw yourself off this temple. Use your power to test God's ability to save you. Then finally, in one last tremendous and impressive effort, the tempter flies Jesus up high enough to see all the kingdoms of the world. Remember, the world, in the context of Matthew, was occupied by Rome. The tempter says, If you give me all of your power that God has given you, then I will make you Caesar. You can be Caesar. But Jesus, the hero of our story, responds perfectly to every temptation. He quotes scripture to rebuke the temper, to tempter. He never hesitates. He doesn't even break a proverbial sweat. He's positively stoic. on this passage put Jesus's 40 days in the desert and his final victory over the tempter in juxtaposition with the ancient Israelites who had also had a trial in the desert. And we know from Exodus and Numbers that the ancient Israelites complained and behaved badly on their journey, not that I blame them, but there was that whole golden calf incident. One commentator from workingpreacher.org said, Where Israel wandered as punishment for mistrust, however, Jesus fasts and is tempted in order to prove his trust in God and thereby his trustworthiness for the journey ahead. In this way, this scene not only links Jesus to the past of his ancestors, it marks him as superior to them, ready to inaugurate in a new era in the coming, in the ongoing history of the people of God, of God and the people of God. That's one quote. The New Interpreter's Bible says, The story also has overtones of the experience of Israel, the Son of God, who passed through the waters into the wilderness, was tested, and failed because of disobedience and worshiping other gods. Jesus, the true Son of God, who recapitulates Israel's experience in coming out of Egypt is tested in the wilderness and remains obedient to God, specifically refusing to worship another. In contrast to Israel in the wilderness, whose faith wavered until it was restored by the miraculous manna, Jesus is hungry but remains faithful without a miracle. Is anyone else totally disturbed by those interpretations? I mean, I'm not a Bible scholar, so maybe I'm stepping out into deep waters here by challenging these two authors' interpretations, but I gotta be me. I mentioned earlier in Matthew's that Matthew's version of Jesus' wilderness story disturbs me a little. Every time the lectionary comes around to the various passages, they speak to me, you know, in different ways. They speak different things to me. This time around, Matthew 4, 1 through 11 isn't sitting right. Maybe it's because Jesus went 
what, you know, what all that what Jesus went through and how he behaved doesn't seem humanly possible to me. I don't know about you, but I really, really rely heavily on the human part of our fully divine and fully human savior to feel like I have a fighting chance in this insane world. I think it's also because as a, as a theology of white supremacy rises and rises, and I don't know if I should say again or still, but nonetheless, it is rising to the highest levels of our government. I don't think we as white Christian Americans can afford an interpretation from our Christian scriptures that gives us an opportunity to align ourselves with the perfect Jesus who is superior to his Jewish ancestors. We need always to remember that the book of Matthew, like all of the Gospels, was written after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE. The Jewish people of this time, whether or not they followed Jesus, were traumatized, brutalized, subjugated, terrorized, and scattered. Many Jewish folks, after the destruction of the Second Temple, assimilated into Roman culture, abandoning their faith tradition for safety. Maybe the author of Matthew needed to make meaning in light of the most recent devastation of the Jewish people. Maybe they needed to retell an old story and give it a new ending to help them deal with their new circumstances. That doesn't make Jesus superior. It just means he had some new information. If we are going to read this story today, we need to understand that as white American Christians, we're way more aligned with Rome than we are with the author of Matthew. As white Christian Americans, or white Americans in general, we are never outside of the presence of the tempter. Just as the construction of race in this country made blackness dangerous and criminal, by default it made whiteness into a constant temptation to abuse power and a moral liability. I said whiteness, not white people. I can't do anything about the color of my skin, but I can work to resist the temptation of whiteness. But I don't think that any of us performs as perfectly as Matthew's Jesus in resisting the temptation of whiteness. First of all, there are scores of people who don't even know that whiteness is a thing. How can we know that we're giving into temptation if we don't know it's there? And then people will react all different ways when they learn that being white actually means something. Robin D'Angelo calls this knowledge racial stress, and you can read about that in her book, White Fragility, and that will be in the references. The responses to racial stress include anger, fear, guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal from the stress-inducing situation. There is a great deal of power and privilege in not even knowing that we too are a race. After all, the best way to keep power is to make sure that it's invisible. White people created the construction of race in this country using the myth of Anglo-Saxon superiority and the great white Protestant god of our pilgrim and Puritan ancestors. And you can read more about that in Kelly Brown Douglas's book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. It will also be in the references. We constructed race to divide the workers and maintain political economic, social, and every other type of power over people of color, especially black people, and to separate, of course, the black and white workers, because that's dangerous when the workers come together. 
Whiteness was created as a negation of blackness. You must know that whiteness was created as a negation of blackness. It is about what we are not. Europeans who once were considered not to be white became white in order to join that top-tier citizenry because even if they were dirt poor, at least they weren't black. And this is how the rich and powerful have always been able to divide us. Whiteness does not have the kind of power the devil was asking Jesus to use. Rather, it has the kind of power the devil was offering in exchange. Podcast friends, this Lenten season, let's resist with all our hearts, all our souls, and all of our strength, the temptation of whiteness. And how do we do this? First, by naming whiteness and understanding that it was created as a negation of blackness. We are not that negation. We can resist and create a new way forward. My call to action is to resist this temptation of whiteness For example, if you are offered a speaking gig or a role in a social justice movement or action, think about whether a person of color would be better for that gig or that role and pass it on to them. Tithe this Lent season and beyond to POC-led organizations. Buy art and books and see movies made by artists and writers of color and, of course, music as well. Deepen your relationships with your friends of color. Listen to them when they tell you what they've been through. Don't try to fix it or don't try to say it happened to you too. Just listen, listen, listen. And be compassionate to your white friends who struggle more than you do with racial justice and white supremacy issues. And sometimes I feel like this last one is the hardest But we're not going to make it if we're going to fight each other. We're just not going to make it if we fight. Let's keep trying to build a new world. Thank you so much for joining me from wherever you are in this world today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. Next week we have... I did not look up who's next week's contributor. Forgive me. So I don't know who we'll have next week but it will be good and they will be with us on the second week of lent you can find out more about surge at showing up for racial justice.org and our podcast lives at soundcloud search on the word is resistance give us a like or rate us on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts transcripts are made available on our website which includes references resources and action links and finally As always, a huge thank to the sound editor this week, Matt Reno. Thank you, Matt, so much. Blessings to all of you out there as you resist the temptation of whiteness and the way it distorts and deforms our humanity. Blessings to you on that. Love and liberation to you all. Until next time, I am Jean Jeffress. Children.